Unless we live in Paris, right now we're shut out of its rivers and bridges, away from the ancient bulk of Notre Dame, the little flower markets and the neighbourhoods of the old city with their bars and pavement cafes. This is the Paris millions of us know, but alongside it there's another Paris, not so easily seen, a city that is home to the sound of sumptuous fabric being unrolled, the snip of scissors and the flash of a thousand needles pulling silk threads in the painstaking business of making elegant clothes in the ateliers of the French fashion houses. Across France, the modern fashion industry employs around a million people and contributes a big chunk to the country's economy. But what interests me here is just one section of it, haute couture, custom-made clothing that is constructed by hand from start to finish. I will never own a garment like this. I don't have the money or the inclination. But the story of the skilled makers who sit behind the seams of the garments we see on the catwalks and in the fashion magazines is fascinating the feather artisans and sequin makers, the weavers, corsage creators, button makers, seamstresses, lace makers, and the embroiderers. In certain studios, uh, I got to work with really beautiful uh, materials. Uh, I got to work on wonderful gowns for the Cannes Film Festival, the Met Gala Ball, and I got to work on pieces of embroidery that I personally loved, um, which isn't necessarily the case. Uh, you have to work on things that you don't think are nice um, or wouldn't be to your taste. I certainly was learning the techniques uh, and that was very enjoyable for me uh, as an artist or a craftsperson. Welcome to Haptic and Hugh's first series of podcasts, which looks at textiles of all kinds down the centuries and thinks about the role they play in our lives. I'm Jo Andrews, and I'm a hand weaver and a broadcaster. Haptic means the feel of something, and Hugh describes the pure spectrum of colours. This episode explores the hidden hands behind haute couture and looks at how it has fostered some of the most skilled, textile artisans in the world. It also thinks about the way the system has developed and how it is changing in the face of modern tastes and pressures. To make it, I went to Paris in March and visited workshops, talked to artisans, designers and specialist shop owners. It was a privilege to do this in what turned out to be, in Europe, the last week of our old lives. The secret foundation of Parisian style and elegance is its haberdasheries, known in French as a mercerie and in American English as a notion shop, a word that doesn't begin to do justice to the glory of these treasure houses of fabrics and feathers, buttons and trimmings. The best haberdashers are in Paris's second arrondissement, a district north of the Palais Royal called Le Sentier. This is the old-fashioned district which once hummed with activity. Today the ateliers have moved on, but the haberdasheries remain. Shops like Ultramode, where you can choose from its stock of 50,000 buttons, smooth its collection of 1950s Duchess satin and ruffle vintage silk velvet ribbons beneath your fingers. 
or cross the street and enter its chapellerie, a specialist shop that sells hats and all the trimmings to shape and decorate them. Auvergassois is not far away. It's on the first floor of an old building just off the Grand Boulevard. You have to be determined to find it. It specialises in pure silk embroidery thread. If you enjoy colour, which I think most of us do, then this place lifts your heart as you open carton after carton of thread collections on tiny wooden spools in graduated shades and tints. These are glorious places, but they're also important places, because this is where couture was born. In the 18th and 19th century, Paris's haberdashers were fashion's first stylists. The relationship between a haberdasher and her client was an intimate one. The haberdasher had to know exactly what was in fashion, what the latest trends and colours were, and provide advice on how an old garment could be updated with new trimmings to make sure that her customer was appropriately dressed for the occasion, whatever it was. My guess is that rather like hairdressers today, haberdashers knew a lot of secrets. It was on the strength of these expert suppliers that Charles Frederick Worth, an Englishman, opened his haute couture atelier in 1858. He was known for his lavish use of fabrics and trimmings and his attention to fit. He also pioneered a system of showing a range of garments on live models at the House of Worth. Clients made their selection and had the clothes tailor-made in his workshop. By the end of the 19th century, this system had spread far beyond the small, courtly and aristocratic circles of Paris and wealthy women were coming from all over Europe and beyond to have their clothes made in the ateliers. By 1900, more than 170,000 needlewomen, known as the Midinette, were employed in Paris, mainly in Le Sentier. They were a formidable force. Working-class women from Montmartre and Belleville, who were employed by the ateliers and earned a living for themselves. They had their own dining halls and fought successfully for the right not to work on Saturday mornings, but instead to have it off. The demand for fine French textiles, ribbons, lace, artificial flowers, buttons, thread and everything to supply this industry spawned a supply chain of quality manufacturers across the country. Firms who, because of couture, have survived in France in a way in which they haven't in Germany, Britain or America. I think we have very, very less than we had before, but I think that because of haute couture, you know, we still have people working. So, uh, for example, in the, um, in the factory where they make my ribbon, my woven, woven ribbons, uh, in the place where they are, I don't know, 50 years ago, there were perhaps 50 or 60 or 100 manufacturers. And now there are two, three, four, you know, but we still have a little bit. Frédéric Cressin Billet is a historian and collector of haberdashery. She has her own shop called Maison Sajou, 
which specialises in traditional French-made fabric, threads, ribbons, pins and trimmings. First of all, it's because this is our heritage, so French heritage, so it's important for me. I think there is a quality and a know-how. Perhaps they were the same, and I'm sure, they, they were the same know-how in England and in Germany, but they forgot it. And now in France, we still have, not so much, but we still have people producing. In Normandy, where we used to produce pins and needles, we still have a manufacturer making that, you know. So this is perhaps the difference. We still have some little things and I try to help them. Frédéric has helped to revive a famous French brand of thread, Philo Chinoise, some of which is made with machines dating back to the 1890s. Ribbon manufacturers in Saint-Étienne have restarted ancient weaving machinery for her. Her shop attracts buyers from all over the world and her determination to conserve French heritage helps keep around 30 suppliers going. Suppliers using old methods with modern materials. She is clear, though, that this doesn't make her a rich woman. Only passion, you know, passion. Because if I had no passion, I think I were not here anymore, you know, because I don't earn a lot of money. But... I have so much nice people working with me and, you know, and I, I can create. The reason of my life, this is to create. Frédéric and the other haberdashers supply an industry that has changed greatly in the last century, but which has had at its core skilled craftspeople, people like Rebecca Devani, who we heard at the start of this podcast. So from when I was 18 or 19, I was always fascinated by the history of Hulkutier fashion in Paris. And I had a fairy tale dream of coming to Paris and learning how to do Hulkutier embroidery. Rebecca took a teaching job in the Gulf to save the money so that she could enrol for her professional qualification at France's top embroidery school, École Lesage, set up by the family who founded Maison Lesage, the top supplier of embroidery work to the French fashion industry. It was a tough course. Yeah. <laughs> In short, that was very hard. So you do 150 hours uh, class time. Uh, so I did my qualification in six months and it turned, I found out later uh, that I could have taken a lot longer to do it. But I was under time and financial pressure. So um, I did three three-hour classes per week through French. And in the beginning, I would have maybe six hours homework each evening. And then by the end, um, I was doing, I'd say, about 14 hours embroidery per day, 14 to 16 hours embroidery per day. Um, so. I should think you wanted to burn it at the end of that. Oh, no, I'm going to be buried in that. That's my funeral shroud. <laughs> Her sampler is a thing of wonder, in pink, blue and gold, studded with detail, precise in its execution and in the lavish application of sequins, flowers, feathers and tiny stitches. If you'd like to see it, there are pictures on the Haptic and Hue website on the page for this podcast. Everyone on the Lesage professional course does the same standardised sampler. It's 40 centimetres by 60 centimetres and it includes about 29 hokature embroidery techniques. 
and a huge variety of materials like passementerie, beads and sequins and threads. And I suppose it's like a masterpiece. It's like a visual CV. Like if I were to bring that to an interview, people would know that I, I can do these techniques. So it's a visual kind of summary of all the techniques that I learned. As Rebecca came to the end of her studies, she asked her teachers what the next step was to become a professional embroiderer. And they were saying that really, since the 19th century, the techniques for hokature embroidery haven't changed. and um, They've remained the same. What has changed is the materials that you're working with um, as production and industry has developed. They were saying the best way to gain experience um, and to broaden your knowledge is to start working in the ateliers because you get exposed to all these different ranges of sequins and beads and things like that. And for me, I love the idea of that, of seeing all these materials that I wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to buy myself. I wouldn't necessarily be able to afford them and to learn how to use them at the same time because embroidery is full of hints and tips and tricks uh, that you learn as you go. There are three recruitment agencies in Paris that specialise in haute couture embroidery. Rebecca signed up with all of them and was sent out to work in a number of well-known ateliers. She found the work satisfying and interesting from a craft point of view and her love of embroidery still shines out of everything she says. But there's a big drawback in today's system. The cons uh, would be that it was, for me, a very stressful period financially in that it was contract work, which depends on the seasons in fashion, the rhythms of the fashion season. And it also can change season by season. Embroidery can be in, embroidery can be out. If embroidery is out, it means you won't have work. And also the rates of pay were a lot lower than I expected. An embroiderer working... Um, for the major fashion houses in Paris would be paid between 12.50 and 13 euro an hour. That's about $15 an hour and that's gross. That's before the French tax system and the French social charges are taken out, which is about between 40 and 50%. Uh, and you're living in a capital city, so financially there was a great strain. But the other thing to bear in mind is that you're working, you might have work for, you might have very intense work for two weeks or three weeks. And then between periods, you uh, sign up with unemployment services. And the unemployment system in France works in a way whereby you are given 50% of what you earn. So with the unemployment service, because I was being paid 13 euro an hour, unemployment was paying me 6.50 an hour in the periods that I wasn't working. The gig economy has well and truly arrived in haute couture. The houses have anything between two and around 15 or 20 staff embroiderers. For the rest, they bring in freelancers on hourly rates when they have the work. They have developed a system whereby young embroiderers who have gone through their training at a colossage or in the national embroidery schools in France, they don't have the opportunity to train in their craft. Previously, it was said that embroiderers needed about seven years working in a studio, like any other craft, before they had really gotten their wings. They had had a broad exposure to materials, to techniques, and they were able to work independently. But now with the system of contract or freelance work, 
you don't have that time in the studio. So the embroiderers that I would talk to who have, you know, 30, 40 years of experience and just a treasure of savoir faire, they really lament, actually, the fact that they can't pass down their skills. I think it's a very short-term approach, but the fashion industry has changed massively and that has a knock-on effect for the craftsmanship that goes behind whole couture work. So in the short term, there might be very high profits for certain people, the top end of the system, um, but it means that in the long term, they won't have the craftspeople to do the work in France. And already the industry is seeing an exodus of trained embroiderers like Rebecca, who now teaches embroidery and runs her own textile tours of Paris. So a lot of the stock here has been made in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s in textile centres in Paris. Uh, and as the story develops during the tour, uh, we'll find out that those textiles are no longer produced. Marie Bertelou is a goldwork embroiderer who works in a small studio in Paris. She started off by studying fashion, but then, as a postgraduate, looked around for a craft to specialise in and found her inspiration at the art school in the city of Rochefort. Because it's simple, but at the same time, it the reason that she loves gold work is because the material is very, very interesting. It's very supple and flexible, um, but it's also very fragile and can break very easily. Also, Rochefort is the only place in France where she could study gold work embroidery, and it was very rare. It was quite exceptional. So that's what intrigued her most. And du coup, I trouvais interesting to rendre très contemporaine cette technique très, très ancienne. So what was fascinating for Marie was that this uh, technique was generally used for ecclesiastical or military embroidery. But when she was studying, when she was in school, they were encouraged to break the materials that are generally very precious, to play around with them and to create contemporary pieces that were inspired by traditional work. In the old days, Marie would have gone to work for a haute couturier, but not now. Instead, she set up her own small company and takes commissions from architects and interior designers to create one-off bespoke pieces. This is a new enterprise and Marie is still in the phase of sampling and developing a client base. Her work is glorious, fine and intricate and she incorporates the throwaways from the luxury textile industry where she can. She's not sure she can make a living doing this, but it's worth a try. Embroidery is generally thought of as being very fragile and very delicate. But on the contrary, actually, embroidery can last uh, for centuries. And then there's also the feminine side whereby embroidery can have negative connotations because mm -hmm. it's seen as a pastime or a hobby of women. In France and possibly around the world, it's there is a tradition of embroidering at night, whereby you would be repairing or adding details to your clothes. It's not at all seen in an area of craftsmanship or fine art. It's seen as very utilitarian. But there's another deeper reason why Rebecca and Marie and countless other embroiderers like them no longer work in the ateliers. The label on your haute couture garment may say made in France, 
but particularly if it's embroidered, that's no longer likely to be entirely the case. Uh, et le gros de la production est fait en Inde. Yes, that's the truth. Actually, the prototypes or the sampling is done in France, but the production stages are done uh, abroad. And the clients don't know this. Je pense que les clients uh, le savent. Franchement, je pense que tout le monde le sait. Marie feels that everybody is aware that the production work is done abroad. Perhaps everybody in France. However, it doesn't affect sales. It reflects the way the market is going at the moment. Marie thinks that the clients buy the label and the, um, the, the ambassadors of the label, they buy into the image of whoever is working as the ambassador for the label rather than buying for the craftsmanship. Even the Senate, the upper house of the French Parliament, which had called a meeting with the artisans the week I was there, was surprised to learn that the haute couture houses were sending work abroad. But she was saying that this is exactly what came up on Monday. Okay. An embroiderer who works in fashion said this, and the Senate wasn't aware the Hokature houses were having their embroideries done abroad and that they were still eligible for the Made in France qualification. Rebecca explains how the system works. So the first prototype of a sample will be done in France. The kind of over and back of adding these beads or these pearls or these stitches. Once the client has agreed, they might decide that they need 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 pieces. That production stage was previously done in France and as you can imagine with doing embroidery for 10 or 30 or 40 pieces for even just one house would involve an awful lot of work and an awful lot of employment. Now that production work is sent abroad. It's sent to India, yeah. I know that there's a huge uh, or a thriving hokature embroidery industry in India and there's also one in North Africa. Somebody from the embroidery studio in France will bring the sample or the prototype to their collaborators in India, where the production stages will be completed and then, again, sent back to France in an extremely short turnover period. And at a very economic price. At a very economic price, yeah, but with very similar standards of quality. I wonder if this matters, as long as the Indian or North African embroiderers, who tend to be men, are paid fair wages. They deliver high quality, and after all, a number of the embroidery techniques originated, particularly in India. I know that the French embroiderers are very adamant that you can tell the difference. There's a certain finesse, kind of standards of uh, finish that are lacking in the Indian embroideries. In conversation with the head of the embroidery studio of Vermont, who, you know, collaborate with Indian embroiderers, she would say that very much so, the standard is the same and that they're very proud to be working with the Indian ateliers. And yet when people buy haute couture that says made in Paris or made in France, they have an expectation that everything is done here. Absolutely. Uh, my understanding would be that haute couture is synonymous with Paris. I think the discernment of the customer perhaps has changed over the decades and over time. And where previously there may have been an awful lot of focus on the craftsmanship and the skills and the creativity behind Hokature, now there is an awful lot of focus on the labels and the brands 
So customers are now more buying into a brand and buying into a label and they may not be asking questions such as where is this made? And it also means that little by little, the skills and the specialist knowledge that made haute couture stand out are leaving France. What embroiderers uh, would say is that previously they were asked to work with a much broader variety of materials and that when they would come into the studio they never knew what challenges they were going to face and for them as craftspeople that was fascinating problem solving finding a solution so the client and the artistic director might decide on this certain kind of sequin and it had never been made before and then it was up to the embroiderers to figure out how to use it the embroiderers would say that there was an awful lot more creativity and excitement and buzz in previous times whilst the quality has remained the same for them it's not as challenging or interesting Rebecca believes that in time, this will signal the end of the fairy tale. I know a lot of my colleagues who I would have worked with just can't afford to continue working as embroiderers. It's a way of life that involves a constant amount of stress. You you will find in Paris a lot of embroiderers working as waitresses. Those who have a real love of the heritage of haucature in France, including Particularly if you speak to people who work in the recruitment agencies, they are very aware that the system that has come in place now will actually lead to the demise of Hogajore because it is so focused on profit rather than craftsmanship. Whilst some of the large Hogajore houses make efforts uh, to train new young craftspeople and to kind of incubate them and to Uh, relaunch systems of apprenticeship it is seen by some as a token gesture not enough I've worked in studios where you have tailors in their 70s being the best tailors being flown in from Turkey and other places in Europe to work on collections because there is nobody coming up behind them and the tailors themselves will say you know when we were in our late teens, early 20s, up into our 30s, we were still doing apprenticeships and there's nobody here taking our places. Marie Bertelou puts it another way. Toute la question de la délocalisation, en fait, chaque pays doit conserver ce qu'il a su faire. But Marie believes that each country has an obligation to preserve the craftsmanship or the heritage that was born in that country and that it's very important that these crafts are supported in the countries and that they continue in those countries. Marie is well aware that in India and other places around the world, people are very gifted at embroidery. That she has absolutely nothing against Indian embroiderers, um, but that she believes that French embroidery should be preserved in France. Je pense que ce qui est très important, c'est que on est justement chaque pays. Goldwork embroidery can be seen in Spain or Madagascar or France. The technique stays the same, but it's the manner in which the technique is interpreted or expressed creatively. And this is what's interesting. This is what gives another look, uh, another regard. And that is very much worth preserving as well. There is a tremendous sadness that an era of respect for French craftsmanship and excellence is passing. But at the same time, both Marie and Rebecca still find joy in the skills themselves as they find new ways to earn a living. It is really sad because despite the stress and the anxiety from the financial end, the embroidery work is absolutely beautiful. 
and it really is you know the best of materials really fascinating techniques sometimes it can be breathtaking when you look at the embroidery particular in museums and galleries you know I always loved it I always thought it was beautiful but then once I'd studied it and I knew how long it took to add each bead it really just would take my breath away This episode of Haptic and Hugh was written, narrated and edited by me, Joe Andrews. Many thanks to Frédérique of Maison Sajou for sharing her passion for haberdashery. To Marie Berthelou of Studio Excelli for showing us goldwork embroidery at its best. And most of all to Rebecca Devani for her skill, insights, interpreting, good humour and willingness to share a glass of wine in the evenings with me. You can find out more about each of them with photos of their work and links to their own sites at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. All the haberdashery shops I mentioned have good online websites and ship round the world. More details are on the website, but your bank manager will not be best pleased. You can also find show notes there where I provide a complete transcript to this podcast with a list of resources and background reading that you might enjoy. You can sign up to get these podcasts directly into your inbox and have a chance to win the textile-related gifts that I give away with each episode. You'll also find blogs and other information about textiles and haptic and hue there. Next time we stay in Paris to meet the woman who is the happy owner of the world's largest collection of fancy yarn. Eve Corrigan has the yarn stash to end all yarn stashes, 900 tonnes of it. Find out why she needs it and what she makes with it next time on Haptic and Hue. And thanks for listening.